Good morning and welcome to our service here at Midway. We're so thankful that you're here and we appreciate so much the fact that you have chosen to be with us on this morning as we've come together to worship our Father in heaven. We do have some who are out. They are down in Montgomery. have others who are traveling in different places, but we pray for them that they'll have a safe trip. Be glad when they get home. As you look on the screen, you see the title of an article that I came across as I was researching for this lesson. The title of the article was simply this, Don't Let the Doctor Do This to Your Newborn. It was written by Kristen Scarlett Malloy. And I began to read this article, and I looked at it, and she portrayed in the beginning of the article a mother who had just given birth, and the doctor takes the baby from the mother, and as he takes the baby from the mother, he says to the mother, Well, it's time for this baby's uh, procedure. The mother looks with a puzzled look at the doctor. What procedure? She doesn't understand. The doctor says, oh, don't worry about it. Everybody has it done, and it's only uh, harmful in 1% to 2% of the cases in which the procedure is done. Well, you know, that, that raises some suspicion in the mother's mind, and so she doesn't want the doctor doing anything to her baby that will harm the baby. And, and I'll have to admit that Miss Malloy, she sort of draws you in on the, on the article. She doesn't want anything done to this baby. And, and, and she makes it, you know, to appear that no good parent would want anything harmful done to this little baby. And certainly as parents, we would be drawn into that because we would not want anything harmful done to our children. But then she begins to explain what she has, what she's talking about. Notice one of the uh, two or three of the paragraphs that I'll read from, but here's the first one. She said, we tell our children you can be anything that you want to be. We say a girl can be a doctor and a boy can be a nurse, but why in the first place must this person be a boy And that person be a girl. Your infant is an infant. Your baby knows nothing of dresses and ties or makeup or an aftershave of the contemporary social implications of pink and blue. As a newborn, your child's potential is limitless. The world is full of possibilities that every person deserves to be able to explore freely, receiving equal respect and human dignity while maximizing happiness through individual expression. Did you catch anything that sort of makes your ears stand up and say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, she goes on and she has something else to say. She says, with infant gender assignment, in a single moment your baby's life is instantly and brutally reduced from such infinite potentials down to to one concrete set of expectations and stereotypes And any behavioral deviation from that will be severely punished, both intentionally through through bigotry and unintentionally through ignorance. That doctor and the power structure behind him plays a pivotal role in imposing those limits on helpless infants without their consent and without your informed consent as a parent. This issue deserves serious consideration at every, uh, by every parent because no matter what gender identity your child ultimately adopts, infant gender assignment has effects that will last through their whole life. If your ears were not raised up and your antenna were not up in that first paragraph, surely it is with that one. But if not, let me add one more to it. 
Here's another thing that she, that she wrote. She said, infant gender assignment is a willful decision and as a maturing society, we need to judge whether it might be a wrong action. Why must we force this on kids at birth? What is achieved besides reinforcing tradition? What could be the harm in letting a child wait to declare for themselves who they are once they're old enough, which generally is believed to happen around the age of two or three? Clearly, most children will still turn out like we would expect, but it's unlikely the extra freedom would harm them. On the other hand, we do know the massive harm caused by some children by the removal of that freedom. You know, I look at that and I, I can't help but think of three in particular sentences that really, really, really need to be talked about. For example, but why in the first place must a person be a boy and this person be a boy and that person be a girl? In that second paragraph on your second screen, that doctor and the power structure behind him plays a pivotal role in imposing those limits on helpless infants without their consent and without your informed consent as a parent. And then on the third paragraph... That infant gender assignment is a willful decision and as a maturing society we need to judge whether it might be a wrong action. Why must we force this on kids at birth? Do you know, surely you do by now, the procedure that this lady was writing about when she said, don't let the doctor do this to your child? It's simply calling him a boy or a girl. Simply saying, you have a son or you have a daughter after it's born. You know, used to, uh, you didn't know what you were going to have until the baby was born. Now you can go and you can get uh, 4D sonography and you can almost see the face and everything. And, and many people choose to go and say, you know, I've got, I'm going to have a little boy, I'm going to have a little girl. She says, y'all not do that. Let the child when he's two or three years old or more, you know, let them choose what they're going to be, whether they're going to be a boy or a girl. We're talking this morning about identity crisis. It is a big discussion in our nation today, and in particular, when we talk about identity crisis, we're talking about transgenderism this morning. And, and I think that it deserves to be talked about because it is a subject that we can find some things in regard to it in the Bible and that as Christians, we need to find them and we need to know what the Bible teaches us in regard to this because so many people in our world, in our society, in our nation, they're struggling with this kind of thought and it's affecting Christians, it's affecting the way Christians act in our world and we need to understand some things about what God wants us to know in regard to these things. Let's take that first one this morning, that first thing that I said we need to talk about. Why must this person be a boy and that person be a girl? You know, I can't help when I start discussing this, but to think about my time as a student under Brother Wendell Winkler. Brother Winkler used to say, there are some words that just don't deserve to be in the pulpit. 
And he would give a list of those words. He'd say sometimes, you know, the word crazy. You shouldn't say the word crazy from the pulpit or the word stupid from the pulpit or, or some of these other words, you know. And he would give a list of words that, that really, you know, had no business. Well, I hate to say it, Brother Winkler, I'm going to break your rule this morning. I can't help it. You know, you just can't begin to think that our society has become so crazy that it would allow the ridiculous idiocy and stupidity of something like this to be legitimized. You can't help but wonder. You really just want to say, well, uh, if you want to know what the baby is, just look at the equipment. You'd be able to tell it's a boy or it's a girl. You're going to know right off the bat which one it is. And you know, that's true with the majority of cases, but in a rare case, it may not be true. Uh, hermaphroditism is something that takes place in, on rare occasions in our society. It's not known as hermaphroditism today. It's more better known today as intersexism. But in the zoological world, there are some species which are hermaphrodites. They possess both the male and the female uh, organs. Uh, there are some jellyfish which are known as sequential hermaphrodites. They're born one gender, later changed to the other. There are other species such as earthworms that are known as simultaneous hermaphrodites. They possess both the male and the female sexual organs. And there are some babies that are born, human babies that are born with both male and female sexual organs or characteristics of both organs. A child who is intersexual in the state is classified in one of three categories. Number one, they may be classified as a true hermaphrodite. That's an infant that's born with both ovaries and testicles, usually one of each and both has, uh, or, or has both the male and the female sex organs. This is known in the medical world as ovotesticular disorder of sex development. And although a few cases have been documented in which a person is able to be fertile, in other words, can reproduce as either a male or female, there's no documentation, according to what I can find, of cases in which both types of the, uh, the genitalia or the, uh, uh, the sex organs, that both of them function. That's a true hermaphrodite. There's also female pseudo-hermaphrodite, a genetic female with male external sex organs, or there's male pseudo-hermaphrodite, a genetic male with external sex organs that, that fail to develop properly, resulting in a male-female uh, physical characteristics. That takes place in our society. We understand that. But there's a body called the Intersex Society of North America. On their website, they write this. But how do you pick a child's gender if she or he is intersex? The child is assigned a gender as a boy or a girl after tests. Hormonal, genetic, radiological have been done and the parents have consulted with the doctors on which gender the child is more likely to feel as she or he grows up. They go on to explain that some characteristics tend more to the female, some more to the male. But here's their conclusion. 
We advocate assigning a boy or girl gender because intersex is not and will never be a discrete biological category according to the Intersex Society of North America website. In other words, after testing is done, you can pretty well legitimately determine whether this is a boy or this is a girl. And one or the other needs to be called for that child, according to this group. Now, one thing that it's important for us to understand this morning as we discuss this is if a baby is born with some condition, a physical disorder of some uh, uh, means, that baby wasn't born that way to punish the baby or to punish the parents, either one. We know that from John chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, where there was a man born blind, the disciple of Jesus asked him, said, Lord, which one of these, you know, what happened? Was this man born blind because he sinned or because his parents sinned? Jesus said, neither one. But that the power of God might be displayed. It wasn't as a punishment. You know, since the beginning of time, the determination of one's gender has never depended on the individual's thoughts and preferences. That's what Miss Malloy and that's what others in our society are advocating today. Just let them choose. But from the beginning of time, it has not been that way. Let me call your attention to a couple of passages in the Word of God that help us to understand that. If you have your Bible, it's not going to be on the screen, but if you have your Bible, turn to the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, chapter 12. Beginning in verse number 1 and going through verse number 4, the Bible speaks about what happens after a baby is born. The Bible there says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for thirty-three days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. Verse number five, very similar. If she bears a female child. Now remember in verse number 2, he speaks about the male child. In verse number 5, if she bears a female child, she's unclean not for one week, but for two weeks. And she will continue in the blood of her purifying not for 30 uh, days, 33 days, but for 66 days. And then verses 6 through 8, after all of that has taken place, then she takes the child and she goes to the temple and she offers the sacrifice that God prescribes. Folks, the woman, the parents, they had to determine right off the bat, is this a boy or is this a girl? You see, the actions of the mother depended on whether or not this is a boy or this is a girl. And so the instructions, the law of the Old Testament was determine, is this a boy, is this a girl? If it's a boy, you act in this way. If it's a girl, you act in a different way. You see, even from the beginning of time, folks have known, and especially when we get to the Old Testament law of Moses, we understand God makes it clear, you can know if it's a boy or you can know if it's a girl or not. 
The Bible clearly depicts ancient people at God's direction making the determination regarding the gender at the time that the child was born based on their anatomy. And so proper classification depended exclusively on one's physical characteristics at birth. We've got to understand that. We've got to know that. But then let's take up that second thing that she said. Malloy's statement, that doctor and the power structure behind him plays a pivotal role in imposing those limits on helpless infants. I would like for Miss Malloy to know that it wasn't the doctor who imposed the child's gender on him or her. See, it was God who determined what genders would exist. Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in, his, in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them and blessed them and named them man they, when they were created. You see, in Genesis chapter 5, he's just quoting from what we know as Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Jesus believed that. Matthew chapter 19, at verse number 4, Jesus answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? You know, just like God created man, male and female, human beings, male and female, God created animals as male and female. Okay? But if you go to the book of Genesis, chapter number 7, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse number 3, God tells Noah, get on the ark. And Noah, I want you to take some animals on the ark. Don't just get a few, but take, take two of each one Two, a pair of each one. But there were some of them that you take seven pairs of them. But he specifically says that Noah was to take a male and his mate, is the way the English Standard Version translates it. Of the clean animals, the male and his mate, a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of birds of the heaven, also male and female, he changes the word, the male and the female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. The male and the mate were both not man and woman, but male and female there. It's interesting that the word mate is, is akin to the word that's translated wife in the Old Testament as well. In Genesis chapter 7, again, drop on down to verses 8 and 9, he says, Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female. There's no doubt but what the mate was. In this case, he goes back to that word female. They went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. What was the purpose of God putting these animals on the earth so that they would be able to come back out and replenish? They wouldn't perish from off the face of the earth. 
My question is, how would the offspring of the animals ever have existed if Noah hadn't been able to tell male from female? If he hadn't been able to know the difference? What if he had carried all of, uh, of one gender on the ark uh, of some species, some, some of those animals? Well, they'd be gone, wouldn't they? God knew what he was doing. You see, by God, we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Keith read that in our Bible reading this morning from the book of Psalm 139 in verses 14 through 16. But pay close attention to verse 15. The psalmist said, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Verse 16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And you see, from the time that we're in the womb, even, even from, from the very beginning when the, when the egg is fertilized, God knew about this human being. In Isaiah 44, verses 24 and 25, the Bible says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things who alone stretched out the heavens and spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and mistakes or makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. It wasn't this particular thing that was under discussion when God was talking about that through the prophet Isaiah. God makes it clear when that baby is conceived in the womb, He knows who it is. He knows what it is. And I don't care how wise people of society think they are, how smart they think they have become, God says, I'll make your wisdom foolishness. And folks, that's what's happened and continues to happen in our day and time. You see, it wasn't the doctor who just randomly picked and said, this is a boy and this is a girl. It was God who when the, womb, when the child was in the womb says, this is a boy. This is a girl. We need to understand that. But that brings us to our third thing. Why must we force gender assignment on kids at birth? Why does it make any difference? That's the whole point. Whether this, this little child with the male characteristics you know, decides he wants to be a female and, and this, little, this little female over here with uh, female characteristics that she determines she wants to act like a boy. Why does it make any difference? Let's look in the Bible. I suggest to you that it makes a difference. Number one, gender assignment is part of being made in the image of God. What do you mean by that? Go back in the Bible to the book of Genesis chapter 1. We noted verse 27 a moment ago, but back up to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, He created Him, male and female. He created Him, them. You see, being created by God in His image had to do at least in part with the male and the female. They're tied inextricably together. And you know what? Because we're made in the image of God, there are some things that are just off limits to man. Let me illustrate. In Genesis chapter 9, in verse number 6, God made it clear, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Now, why was that to take place? We'll read the rest of the verse. What does it say? For God made man in his own image. Why can you go out and shoot a deer? Clean the deer and eat the deer. Mount the deer's head on the wall as your trophy and it'd be okay. Why can't you just go shoot your next door neighbor, have his head mounted, put on the wall, make barbecue out of him? There's a big difference. Your neighbor was made in the image of God, and the deer wasn't. Big difference. It's wrong to murder because man is made in the image of God. That's why it's wrong for abortion, including taking those little babies that are put into a test tube and discarding them and saving one or two. That's why some forms of genetic engineering is wrong. That's why attempts at human cloning is sinful. We're messing in the realm of God. We're messing with the image of God. And you know what? The same is true when it comes to this gender identity crisis of transgenderism. God tied being made in His image with being made as male and female. From chapter number 1 in the book of God's Word, the Bible, God Himself tied those things together. You see, in ignoring or seeking to destroy the masculinity or the femininity, we're tampering with the image of God. You see, God purposely made us the way we are. He purposefully made us that way. Males had an anatomical design that included the ability to produce seed while impregnating females. Genesis 38 at verse 9. Females had the anatomical design consistent with bearing and, and, and nursing and nurturing children. In Genesis chapter 4 at verse 25, Adam knew his wife. Seth was born. And Eve said... God has appointed for me another offspring. 
In Genesis 5, verses 1 through 3, after saying that man is made in the likeness and image of God, Adam, it said in verse 3, that Adam had lived 130 years. He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and he named him Seth. You see, in chapter 4 and chapter 5, Seth is said to have been born, but one, it's attributed to the mother, the other, it's attributed to the father. It took both. Both Adam and Eve. Adam knew his wife Eve. She is the one who conceived. God had a purpose in making us the way that we are. Part of that had to do with the replenishment of of people on the earth. But you know what? The Bible also alludes to the importance of both masculinity and femininity. Fathers are to demonstrate leadership while mothers are to be nurturing. In the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 7 and going through verse number 12, the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians at Thessalonica. And I want you to notice what he says. He describes himself in two different ways. He says in verse number 7, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Notice the characteristics. You drop on down to verse number 11, For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. You see, the characteristics that is expected of man and woman, husband, wife, father and mother, are sort of laid out for us here. We could go to other passages that deal with it, but the mother, she had one set of characteristics. The father had a completely different set. The leadership was given in the father, the nurturing in the mother. God purposefully made us the way we are, and He made it important for men and women to be different. Though the husband is generally stronger, he's to be gentle with his wife, according to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, at verse number 7. There's a difference. Let me call your attention very quickly this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, at verse number 9. There the Apostle Paul writes and says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. And then he says, nor men who practice homosexuality. That's an interesting phrase, an interesting word. It's a compound word in the original language. first part of it comes from a word that's also translated sodomite. The second part comes from a word which means to be characterized by being soft and delicate. Translated in some translations, King James included, as being effeminate. Effeminate. He talks about a man, it's, a, it's, it's masculine in gender. He talks about a man who practices what the sodomites did and acts like a woman. Who acts as though he is like a woman. To be soft. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 22 at verse 5, the Bible says a woman shall not, bear, not uh, wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. 
We don't have time to deal with it in, in great detail, but one of the reasons for that is shown to us in the minor prophets. You see, in many of the false religions, the men would dress up as women. Women dress up as men and prostitute themselves in worship of their God. We did note here again out of Deuteronomy 22 at verse 5 that when things like this is done, the Bible said it is an abomination to the Lord. We noted in our lesson last week that word abomination is used a number of times, even, even to the point of talking about one who lies. That's an abomination to God. But what does the word abomination mean? We didn't talk about that last week. The word abomination literally means repugnant. Disgusting. It's repugnant or disgusting to the Lord. And hence, when we look at Deuteronomy 22 at verse 5, we can understand that Jehovah is disgusted by men or women wearing clothing properly associated with the opposite gender. Transvestitism, cross-dressing, Transgenderism are a problem when it comes to God's view. Somebody says, well, what about getting a sex change surgery? Just altering everything about my body, making me look completely different. Well, I want you to know something this morning. The Bible never specifically addresses this matter because the technology wasn't available back then. But the Bible does address the matter of self-mutilation. Self-mutilation is associated with grief in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 and 2, You're the sons of God, the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Self-mutilation was not only associated with grief, it was also associated with idolatry. You remember the challenge that uh, the prophet Elijah gave to the prophets of Baal? They dug the trench. They put the, uh, you know, uh, they put the uh, uh, the sacrifices on to the to the uh, the altar. Uh, the prophets of Baal they couldn't call down the fire. Uh, Elijah had them to dig the the trench, fill it up with water, pour it over the thing. God sent the fire. But do you remember what the prophets did when they were trying to get Baal to send fire down from heaven and consume the Sacrifice. Verse 28 says, They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Self-mutilation. You see, these practices are strictly forbidden by God. Leviticus chapter 28, or chapter 19, verse 28 you shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I'm the Lord. 
You see, these kind of actions, this self-mutilization, dishonored the divine image of God in that person and was forbidden because it didn't reflect God's holiness. You see, it does make a difference what we call our kids in the eyes of God. It was He who created us in the way that we are in His own image. He made it clear that He was there when we were conceived and He knew everything about us. And for us to mess with that dishonors Him. You see, the identity crisis resulting from gender distortion today is a symptom of a larger problem. Last week we talked about the underlying problem. Same is true here. The underlying symptom is that a person is that of a person or a society who has rejected God. Romans chapter 1 verses 21 through 31. Pay close attention to verse 25 in that, Romans chapter 1. Paul writes, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. The very next passages begin to talk about how it led to that homosexuality and the sexual sin of their day. You see, when folks try to change what God has created, they try to make it so that, well, my feelings are what really matters. I've exalted myself above the God of heaven. And I have begun to worship the creature rather than the creator. I've replaced him with me. Folks, as we close this morning, the struggles are real. Some folks struggle with dishonesty. Some struggle with lustful thoughts about persons of the opposite sex. And some struggle with homosexual and transgender urges. But regardless of our struggles... The Bible makes it clear that to have fellowship with God, we have to walk in the light. 1 John chapter 1, at verse number 7. I'll readily admit this morning that we have basically given a cursory view of what the Bible has to say in regard to these matters. We can't cover everything in one 30 to 40 minute lesson. But based on what we have seen this morning, to walk as a transgender person is to walk outside the light and outside the fellowship of God and His people. 
As we stated last Sunday night, in how to react to those who who face homosexual urges and desires and seek to live in that way, one of the things that we have to remember is that it's our job to treat them like everybody else. But also to understand that the greatest need they have in their life is God and His Word. And we can't approach it as though we're angry at them. We hate the sin, but we love the sinner. No matter what the sin may be. And we seek to help them understand what is good and what is right. Without saying that everything is okay. Because it's not. Not in that sin or any other sin for that matter. There are many who struggle in our world today, but clearly it's because they haven't seen the light of the Word of God. Or they have seen it and they've chosen to reject it to walk in the darkness maybe you're here this morning and you yourself need to come to the light to be a part of the family of God again no matter what the situation might be in your life God wants you to come home He wants you to follow His Word, to live in accordance with it. It may be this morning that there's something amiss in your life. We don't know what it is. But you need to make that right with your God. If you need to respond to His invitation today, won't you come right now while together we stand and